Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We're joined today by Joe Vyrie. He's the founder of USTAGI, and he's a cost segregation specialist. Uh, timing couldn't be better. Cost seg uh, is something that I think is going to play as, as prominent of a role as it has always played. I think it's going to play an even more uh, critical part in the cap stack and evaluation of deals as things continue to change at a rapid pace. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. No, James, thank you very much for inviting me. Look forward to it. Yeah, so look, we're always looking to deliver value where we can for the audience and see if we can't uh, connect some dots for them and to to look at things from a little bit of a different perspective. So uh, I thought the first place to start is in, in your own words, could you explain to the audience precisely what is cost segregation? Precisely. Wow. Okay. I'll try my best. <laughs> so to be precise, um, basically cost seg is deals with the world of depreciation. Depreciation is an expense against income. So I don't think you need to have somebody very well acquainted with accounting to understand that if you have income, you can reduce your income, your taxable income by your expenses. So what we do in cost segregation is we're accelerating the depreciation expense on the building, which reduces your taxable income, which increases your expenses, reduces your taxable income, and therefore it reduces or eliminates income taxes. So I have my clients call me up because like right now, today is the day, but thank God it's almost over. Where it's a it's a deadline. Uh, September fifteenth is a, is the extension deadline for those who um, uh, have extended their their taxes for their entities, meaning LLCs, LPs, um, uh, corporations. And so, um, basically, uh, you know, I have people calling me up saying, "Hey, I owe money. What can I do?" And this is a, a legal compliant uh, approach to increasing your depreciation expense. So what type of asset classes, I know you've been involved literally in thousands of transactions. So how wide of a spectrum are we looking at here? What type of asset classes would qualify for cost seg? You know, this is is a great, great, great question, James. Basically, and a lot of people don't, there's a lot of, of, of misconceptions, and this is one. Any type of depreciable building, now depreciable because obviously your, your, your residence is not a depreciable asset. So don't call me about a residence that you live in because that's not a depreciable asset. But any type of investment property and, and land, of course, is not depreciable. So any building we can effectively accelerate the depreciation on. And like I've had some people go, wait a minute, I own a warehouse. It's four walls and a roof. What the heck can you, you accelerate in a warehouse? Well, we can find a lot of items in a warehouse. Another one a lot of people don't think about are mobile home parks. But why? Because we also deal with the land improvements. So we're accelerating land improvements as well as the interior personal property of the building. 
So it's a kind of a uh, of a very complicated um, part of the tax code. And to be honest with you, a lot of accountants don't even understand it. They don't get it. And that's the reason why a lot of people still to this day don't understand or know about cost seg because their accountants take the easy method, which is simply straight line. And I can have a five-year-old, six-year-old, or maybe a, a you know a, a smart uh, animal do it. All you need to do is take your building basis, which is what you paid for the property less the land, divide by either 27 and a half years for residential or 39 years for commercial. But it doesn't take you know a brilliant person to look at. You're taking that expense over 40 years. I give it to you today. Okay, so. A lot of ground to cover there. Yeah. Uh, so don't call you about the home that you're living in. Um, a, a thing we've seen emerge over the last few years are the funds are taking down and now uh, a lot of the smaller investors are taking down large packages of one family homes treated as investments, certainly not primaries. Does that qualify? Yes. Okay. Now, now let me, can I give you a caveat now or do you want to continue? No, go ahead, please. Here's the caveat. I started in the industry in 2007. And when we started, uh, there was a document that came out a couple of years earlier, three years earlier, which is the audit technique guidelines uh, that's published by the IRS. That, if you have a reputable firm, that's our Bible. We take those seriously and we do everything the way the IRS wants us to do it. So for years, we did the engineering approach. The engineering, the detailed engineering approach, which we still do a lot of today, means we go out to the property, we document the property, meaning we take pictures, we measure all the building components, the engineer goes back and he does the takeoffs, the calculations, and we deliver the report. Well, think about it. The expense of flying somebody all over the United States is not going to work for a single family home. So we recognize that, and the IRS recognizes that we can do another type of model, or a type of study. It's called the modeling study. And so what we've perfected over the last six years is called modeling, where we can now do it, uh, do an analytical study. We use our database of tens of thousands of past studies and buildings, and we, we basically can use um, pictometry software, which is satellite software, and we get as much information as we can get our hat, hands on, and we can do an analytical approach, which basically tells the IRS, okay, you have a single family home in, in this zip code in Alabama, this size of a property, and this, this big of a lot, and we can give you a report. That type of report is hundreds of dollars, and it's it, it, there, therefore is very affordable. So we do both the the big buildings up to five hundred million is the biggest I've done, up to uh, an eighty thousand dollars single family home. Wow! Yeah, so wow! Technology just continues to open up so many doors and and disrupt so many industries. Uh, as we as we talk about the the asset classes and. Uh, identify essentially it's any improved property that's an investment, right? Uh, can we define improved a little bit more? Let's say I have a piece of vacant land uh, and we've done underground work, we've done sewers, we've done septic, we've done water lines, we've brought in electric. Does that qualify or does it have to be ground up vertical? 
It, it doesn't, but that's a pretty rare, um, a pretty rare exception, meaning that could I do it? Yes, I could, because land improvements are 15 year property. And, uh, you know, we can accelerate the 15 year property, of course. But, you know, then we have to look at like, what, what is it involved? Because if I have to send somebody out somewhere to document the land improvements, I might not get that much bang for the buck. Because, you know, what we do is, is mostly a combination of building improvements, which is personal property, the five-year property inside, and the land improvements. But the answer is yes. I have done um, properties where it was only land improvements, where they came in there and they did drainage, they did water treatment, they did ponds, uh, they did roads. And, of course, that, a lot of that is, is very valuable to accelerate. So... Does it matter if the assets are in a, a QOZB, an opportunity zone, or if it's a 1031 exchange? Do, does that make you eligible or not eligible for any of these benefits? Another great question. Uh, opportunity zones, no. That is just going to increase your tax benefits uh, that you're already getting from an opportunity zone. So the, 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 the question would be, wouldn't you want more, <laughs> more tax benefits, not less? So yeah, I have a lot of opportunity zone clients who do um, who acquire opportunity zone uh, properties and then do do the cost seg on it. Um, the other part of your question was 1031 exchanges. Now the the the, I'll call it the Trump tax law that happened a couple of years ago. It did um, present a wrinkle in um, 1031 exchanges, but I will tell you this to make it really simple is I've had no one who um, has not done um, a cost seg because of the impact of 1031 exchange. It gets a little bit more complicated for us to illustrate it. And, and the reason is, is I think it's simple, but maybe it's not. The reason is it's simple. If you 1031 exchange a, a property uh, and, and you uh, acquire a new property, if you what you brought over from the, the relinquished property, and it's most always gonna be straight line, straight line then is forever frozen. I can't accelerate that. So you have to have something for me to accelerate. Otherwise, I'm going to tell you, don't accelerate. Don't pay me money because I'm not going to give you much benefit because you're frozen. You're locked into, you know, a 27 and a half year or 39 year because you didn't do the cost seg on the property you relinquished. So that can happen. But most of the time what people do is they is they upgrade the property. So it's not like they're, they're selling a million dollar property and buying a million dollar property. They're selling a million dollar property and buying a two million dollar property. Well, I have a million dollars to work with. So then, yes, it makes sense. OK, so that would really tie in to the QOZBs, right? Um, in the opportunity zones, the uh, we, we have significant holdings in uh, in states outside of New York because New York decoupled from the opportunity zone benefit. The federal benefit, but um, let's say we have a, a a property that keep the numbers simple here. Let's say it was a twenty seven million dollar um, property or improvements uh, straight line. I'm sorry, thirty nine thirty nine million dollar uh, building for commercial straight line. Uh, it'd be a million dollars a year that you're able to depreciate, and you're kind of locked in now with the opportunity zones. Uh, we're essentially getting a ten percent discount on our capital gain. And that 90%, depending on when you identified it as qualified money, but let's keep it simple. Um, in 2026 is when the tax man comes, comes looking for payment. 
Um, it, and and one of the the key kind of cornerstone principles of the opportunity zones is you have to be improving the property, right? You have to be creating jobs and you have to be improving the property. So uh, we're going to take a, a, a building and we're going to extend it. We're going to uh, rehab it, whatever it is. We're going to hit that two to one ratio. Um, and come 2026, we know that we have a, a big tax liability that is uh, gonna, we're going to be faced with. Are you able to stack and structure the depreciation uh, in in different increments yearly? In other words, do you get to play with it year by year? Can we backload it to 2026 or no? No. Okay. What you what you could do is you could do the study in 2026 or whenever your tax obligation is due, or as you know, losses carry forward. So you wouldn't be you wouldn't you know you wouldn't have any disadvantage by producing the um, the depreciation expense if you don't need it. It just carries forward until you do need it. Okay, so we could theoretically do the cost seg study in 2026, knowing that we have that burden, um, and that would help us generate these losses to offset what needs to be paid in that calendar year. Correct. And one thing you mentioned too wow. is, is that it's a multi-phase project you're, you're talking about. And unless you you, you have a, a, a cost seg firm that kind of understands uh, and has the experience, um, why I say multi-phase is because uh, what we do is we will look at the acquisition of the property. That's a separate total. You you bought a property for X and we have a building basis of X and we we we're, we do our work on that. Then you've got the um you've got the improvements. That's another phase of the property. So I'll just throw out a number on the $39 million property. Let's say you spend, I'll make it up $5 million. Then we will go and revisit that $5 million and we can accelerate that that also. There may be, although this gets a little tricky and I'm not a, an accountant, so I'm not going to give you accounting advice, but you may be able to take dispositions on the, the, the property that you dispose of when you do the improvements. However, that, that technicality, that code in the IRS is very tricky and it's beyond my uh, capabilities to give you an answer, but that there may be a possibility to expense those items. And one of the values of having a cost segregation study done is you now have got the line items for every part of that building. So if you throw away countertops and you know how many linear feet of countertops you throw away, you have a value that you can now um, you can now expense the the year you throw them away. However, you know the expensing rules get really complicated, and it may not be there. But even if it's not, you still have the accelerated depreciation component of cost segregation, which, again, is going to be huge. Wow. Yep. So, Joe, when do we get you involved in the project? When when is the appropriate time to engage your firm to to start doing an analysis? Well, here, here's how it works. We do a, a no cost estimate. And. So you just give us some answers to some questions, and it varies whether it's a look-back study or a current year. In fact, let's talk about look-back studies, because that's important, because another misconception is, oh, I can only do cost seg on new construction. Oh, I can only do cost segregation the year I buy the property. Okay, I can go back to about 15 years when you acquired the building, not the age of the building, George Washington could could have built the building. I don't care if you bought it within the last 15 years. I can go back 
and you're probably going to get value out of accelerating the depreciation. Now, that's a numbers game. There's calculations that need to be done because you've taken depreciation on look-back studies, so you can't take it twice. So I'm going to accelerate your depreciation. I'm going to I'm gonna have to calculate how much you've taken, and then you're going to have to pay me a fee, and then I will have to decide, is it worth it for you to do cost seg on a building if you bought it 10, 15, 20 years ago? Most of the time, 15 years is is the is is the threshold where I think it makes sense. And then you have the current. So if you do a look back study, you have a filing in your tax year, your last tax year called the depreciation schedule. That's all I need. You give me the depreciation schedule for a look back and the address of the property, but it's not on the depreciation schedule. And then I'll run an estimate at no cost. What do I do when I run the estimate? I will tell you after we look at the building, what we feel um, we're going to find, and then we'll look at how much engineering time it'll take to do the study if it's an engineering-based study. And then if it's a current tax year property, you don't have a depreciation schedule. The last thing your accountant wants to do is a depreciation schedule. They wait. It's probably there are some accounts doing depreciation schedules today for our filing today. They wait until the last minute. So therefore, what we do to get the ball rolling is all I need is the answer to a couple questions. One, how much did you pay for the property? Two, what date did you place it in service? Three, what's the address? And then there's actually the fourth one, which you mentioned. It Was it involved in a 1031 exchange? If it was involved in a 1031 exchange, then I need to see the exchange documents so I can back out um, what you're bringing in from the relinquished property and take that off the table so I don't you know, estimate a higher figure than, than you're entitled to. So once we do, um, we get all the information, we provide you with an estimate, we provide you with the fee, and then what I suggest that the client does is talk to their accountant and say, hey, does it make sense? We don't care if you say yes or no. I mean, we're happy to give you the estimate. We're really good at what we do. And if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, then maybe next time. So it sounds like any time up until 15 years in, um, and even at that point, you can go back as far as 15 years is an appropriate time to engage. But are you finding are folks engaging you at time of acquisition or just before acquisition and modeling that into the cap stack? It, it, oh, I've done it every which way. But yes, if you want me to tell you my dream, my dream is um, when you acquire the property, you you get in touch with us because there's a lot of advantage of doing it sooner rather than later. I've been, you know, there's been some cases where they've done it later and I still uh, pull the rabbit out of the hat. But I like to tell um, the investor, call me as soon as you acquire a property. Let's touch base and let's decide when is the best time for you to do it. Because if it's a value add property and you can take dispositions, I need to document that property before you start ripping things out. I don't make stuff up. So I got to see if you're taking out countertops, how much are you taking out and what kind of countertops are they? Are they tile or are they laminate? And so bottom line is it just depends on a lot of, of, of questions, but call me as soon as you acquire a building, reach out to me and, and then we can discuss what your options are. So how does this affect or how would it play out? Uh, a lot of syndicators around, a lot of folks that are in uh, as LPs uh, that are not really running the deals, uh, but they're in in a passive way. Uh, do you have the ability to do that in in a in a limited partner role, or does this have to come from top down? 
How does that work? Well, it, it's complicated. And that gets into tax advice. And again, I'm not going to give anyone tax advice, but I will tell you that syndications do uh, perform cost segregation. Uh, you mentioned the the one word that is a problematic word, and that's passive. I have a lot of passive investors that do cost seg, and I do not talk to their accountants about how they're applying the, the cost segregation, but I know that it does work for many passive investors. But that being said, what I would do is I would take these passive losses to your accountant and say, okay, I've got passive losses. How can I use them? Because there are a whole bunch of rules to passive and passive uh, income. And I, I'm not capable of answering it because every situation is different. But I will tell you that we do have a lot of passive investors and syndicators are, are, are doing a lot of cost segregation. It does work for them, for sure. And is there any increased risk of audit if you're doing cost seg? Does that impact the IRS? You know, when I started in 2007, nobody even could pronounce cost segregation, let alone spell it. And the first thing I got out of my, out of everyone's mouth, oh, this is too good to be true. There's no way this must be a scam. And oh, my, I'm going to get audited because this is a scam, blah, 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 blah. Those days are over. They are gone. The IRS recognizes um, that cost segregation is the way to depreciate a building. If anybody has a building right now they're in and they look down at the carpet on the floor and I ask them, will that last 27 and a half years or 39 years? They would say, are you crazy? Heck no. And so the IRS has literally hundreds and hundreds of building components that they agree uh, can be accelerated. So we're doing it the right way because the IRS recognizes that, you know, carpet and all types of building components uh, need to be accelerated. So um, the, the, the day of being audited. Now, what you might be audited on is another re, another circumstance in, in your tax return. They may look and see you've done a cost segregation and they, they may want to talk to me about my methodology. And we do that at no cost to, to the client. We defend our work because it's really kind of simple and it's, it's really a, a good thing for us to do because we like to talk to the IRS. We explain our methodology and they ask questions. And then at the end of the day, they say, thank you and goodbye. Um, but if you get somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, or you get somebody who's working out of their garage, or you get a, a, a new entity in the business, I would say, give everybody a little silent warning here. I don't know if everybody knows this, but there is a lot of money going to the IRS. And what are they doing with the money? The, the, the I think it's billions of dollars. They're hiring. And who are they hiring? Part of that is agents. So we in the cost segregation industry that know our industry, we're expecting to be audited. Uh, I don't get audited at all, but I'm expecting more and more audits in the future. So it's just a mild beware. Work with somebody who will defend their work, will be there when you want them. Because I know companies who say they will defy, they'll provide audit defense. And then when the IRS comes knocking, they're nowhere to be found. <laughs> Yeah. We're not. We don't do that. We will. We're happy to talk to the IRS. So get the the audit defense. So, could you talk a little bit about recapture and on a sale, if and how does this impact? Okay. So so if somebody were to call me, the one of the 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 first things I would I would ask them about. We talked about one. Are you a passive or active investor? <clears throat> then number two, I would ask. <clears throat> I would ask them. How long are 
are you planning on holding the building because of depreciation recapture? In my experience, I use a threshold of two years. So if you're going to be selling the property within two years, I will, will most likely tell you, keep your money, don't pay me, because by the time you pay de depreciation recapture, um, it's probably not going to pencil out unless if I give you a dollar today and your internal rate of return is 100%, then you probably will make the numbers work. But for most investors, I would say, you know, I would tell them, don't, don't bother doing it. Um, now, depreciation recapture is a little bit um, a little bit of a complex topic, but let me explain you what some of our accounting partners are doing. By doing cost segregation, now you're identifying the five-year property and the 15-year property. So let's say you hold the property for five years to make the math work. And in five years, what they're telling the IRS is, okay, we've identified the five-year property. Now my client sold the property. The five-year property has no more value. It's like a laptop you bought five years ago. What's the value in, in the laptop that you bought five years ago? Maybe three cents on the dollar? Or, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nothing. They're making the same claim. So basically the five-year um, property that we've identified goes off the table for depreciation recapture. Same argument for, for the 15-year. A third of the 15-year property goes off the table for depreciation recapture. So what I'm saying is a very highbrow, um, way to look at depreciation recapture, but I know some of my accounting partners, they're using this to great um, to great effect, which means that cost segregation not only accelerates your depreciation, but also may be able to reduce your depreciation recapture. Wow. Pretty powerful. Really powerful stuff. Um, and again, as, as I think things are going to continue to tighten up and, and become more of a challenge, this this really, uh, I don't know if there's ever been a better time to start uh, adding some of these tools. If you, if you haven't leveraged them and you've only been taking advantage of straight line depreciation, I don't know if there's ever been a better time to round out the skill set, if you will. Um, so we're, we're talking about such a, a diverse cross-section of investment typologies and um, from 500 million to 80,000. Uh, I assume that the fees are a function of the complexity and the amount that's unlocked. Is that how, how it works? Well, on the analytical approach, we do have a, a, a fee locked um, in, uh, but because they're, they're listeners of your show, if they mention your, your podcast, we'll give them a great discount. Uh, again, the, the fee is not thousands, it's hundreds of dollars to do the, to do the modeling and analytical study. On the other types of studies where we have to take a more detailed approach, uh, what we do is we do look at the um, at the at the building and we have to figure out, OK, how much time. So I'll give everyone a range. It, 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 it's hard to give a range, but because it depends on the complexity of the building. But anywhere around, I would say, fifteen hundred to um, thirty nine hundred dollars would be the starting point for a, a detailed engineering study. And again, it just depends. Like sometimes we go to multifamilies that have 40 buildings. They're huge. We have to look at all the, all the different building types. We have to look individually. Well, that takes hours just to go out to the field to look at those buildings and then to look at the units and to look at the land improvements. So obviously, if we're talking a big building like that, that has 450 um, units in it, then, then it's going to cost a lot more to do that type of study. 
Um, but if we if we're talking about a s- simple eight eight door building, we're we're talking in the three to four thousand dollar range, which makes it very very uh, uh, very very profitable to do cost segregation. And uh, it, it it appears that it's not just a, a historic look back and a snapshot in the moment. You're taking into account or can take into account uh, planned improvements if you're repositioning an asset. Um, yes. These things, I would think this would become a, a really important part of as you're developing um, your plan for your renovations. If, for example, uh, you have the ability to depreciate X if you're making patches on a roof or if you can accelerate the entire roof improvement knock it out of the way in a year where, I don't know, maybe there's a, you sold a cell phone antenna off or there's there's some event where you had additional revenue, we can weave into our planned improvements also, correct? It's not just the building as it sits. Right, and weaved is a good word because the, the advantage to take dispositions on assets is very tricky, <clears throat> but if you plan it right, and I'm saying plan it right, and you must plan it right from the get-go, the beginning, then there are ways to take dispositions legally. Um, it's a complex rule, but but what it takes is planning. So that's why it's worth getting on the phone to me before you pull the trigger and just say, look, I'm thinking about buying this value-add building. You know, what do you suggest we do? And I might suggest, okay, here's the deal. Don't start your renovations in the first six months. Wait if you can, because if you wait, then you can make the argument that, um, make the argument that, that will allow you to take the dispositions. The one part of that rule means if you buy a building with the intent of going in there and ripping everything out, you cannot take dispositions. So so basically, you know, you want to make sure that you you really think about what you want to, um, what, what your pr- processes and strategy. Can you hold the building for six months without doing renovations? Can you try and make that work? And then after six months, it doesn't work. You know, so there's a lot of factors where it would make sense to get me on the phone and just say, hey, look, here's the building. Here's what we're, we're looking at, thinking about doing. And then I can give you tips on how I think it's going to work the best to maximize your deductions and, and reduce your income taxes. Okay. So uh, wherever possible, I like to apply real time scenarios. It, it, it frames it for me and hopefully by extension for the audience uh, okay. a little bit better. So we're acquiring a, a shopping center now. Um, it's a, a very, very good deal. Uh, 50,000 square feet, plus or minus, uh, paying $2.7 million for it. We know it needs uh, improvements. Uh, We don't know the extent of the improvements. That's kind of part of the deal. You you can't go in and really diligence this thing properly. Um, There are a few tenants in there paying right now, but the majority of the center is vacant. What do I need? Do I need to have a a full budget built out of potential repairs? What do I need to have this conversation with you so that we can have an intelligent discussion on what needs to be done and the best way to do it in the the next two, three, five years as we reposition it? Well, I think we, the, the first step is to get on the phone with me and, and, and go over some of the facts that you've already gone over to uh, for me to give you an idea of what I think a good strategy would be. Um, it, it depends on uh, the disposition angle is valuable, but it, it's not the, the, the end all. Um, and it may not be worth it to try to take dispositions um, on, on a property, but I think it's worth it to, um, to pick my brain 
and and get my feedback on on how to construct this so that you stay legal, that you can take the dispositions. Uh, since every building is different, and you mentioned your building in in all of that, I would say off the top of my head for getting the disposition angle, but I would just say um, you want to start by doing cost seg immediately. Now, what does that mean immediately? You know, after you close, get me in there within 60 days so I can document what the heck you bought. And then we'll go from there. And then if, if there are other phases down the road, like, you know, you, you decide to start, um, you know, doing the renovations, I don't know when it makes sense for you to do them. Then we can talk about the second phase, which is going to be the renovations and how that's going to play out. A lot of times the renovations are over years and not over over months. So you got to split it up over over tax years. Um, but I'm, I'm experienced. I know what to do and how to answer that question. So I would say the first thing is just get on the phone and talk to me. Let me know the, what, what you're thinking of doing. And I'll give you my opinion. And then you can take it back to your accounting advice, your tax planners, and see if, if they agree. So I have to ask, Joe, how did you get into cost segregation? You know, this is a highly specialized field. Um, <laughs> I don't think people wake up as kids and say, one day I'm going to be a cost specialist. <laughs> so well, if, they did, if they did, I'd, I'd, I'd be amazed because no one does. Uh, it's kind of a unique story. I've always been in the entrepreneurial mode. When I was at, at, at college, I went to San Diego State. I, I happen to live in San Diego. And uh, when I went to college um, and I while I was working there, I started in the travel industry. Make a long story short, I owned and operated a special interest tour group where I took like entities like the San Diego Chargers and the radio stations, and we took them all over the world. Okay. Then I exited, I sold the business in, in 2000, and I segued into financial planning for the California Association of Realtors. While I was working with the California Association of Realtors, I had a guy who kept bugging me to learn about this new service that he thought that I should learn about. And I kept blowing him off because I thought he was probably talking about soap and so Amway or something. So finally, one day I said, OK, Mike, let's go to lunch. Tell me about it. Well, I had clients that had a huge income tax issue. So I jumped on it right away. I saved my clients like $50,000 in income taxes. And then that was the year 2000. And everybody knows what happened in the year 2007 and eight. The uh, car went off the cliff. The California Association of Realtors um, membership, those that were left certainly weren't worried about investing. They were worried about paying their rent and buying food. And I did the two, um, the cost segs and the owner of the company called me and said, hey, you're really good at this. Why don't you you come and work for me? And I said, yes, let's, that's a good idea. So I started in 2007 and I was not slow when I started because what I found in 2007, I was able to attract a lot of investors that had cash. So while the rest of the real estate market was crashing, what were they doing? They were buying. And guess what they were buying? They were buying properties that spun off a lot of taxable income. So I was very, very important to them. So I was not slow from day one, and it's gone straight uphill for me. I've been very fortunate and lucky, and, and I will be the first to admit that, um, you know, what happened. Because doing what I do, the, the amazing part is that what do I do? I'm giving people money. 
I'm giving them cash flow. I'm allowing them to buy more real estate. I'm allowing them to go to Europe. I'm allowing them to pay for their college education for their grandchildren or children. So it's a great industry to be in. And as long as you know the rules of the road and how to do it competently, I love what I do. So it, uh, I started the show during COVID in large part uh, because there's no there's no courses for this stuff in school, right? There's no financial literacy programs. There's no, uh, there's nobody out there that's pointing you in the right direction. And we felt that if we can make these connections and start building a better network, uh, exactly what you had just said, and, and uh, not that this is 2007, um, although it may very well become that in short order, um, I do think that this is a, a hell of a time to, to start finding ways to pull out what you can, where you can, and when you can, because this will be, in my opinion, the greatest buying opportunity in my lifetime. And 2007, 8, 9, 10 presented some unique opportunities. But um, this is fascinating stuff. What does the USTAGI stand for? U.S. Tax Advisors Group Incorporated. So you can find this either by USTAGI or US, if you want to spell it out, US Tax Advisors Group Incorporated. But USTAGI, as you mentioned in the beginning, is is perfect. And I like short and sweet. What's the what's the best way to for folks to find you? Go online and and www.ustagi.com and uh, they'll get my email and they'll get our our telephone number, contact number, and um, that's the easiest and the best. Super valuable stuff. Uh, Joseph Vyrie, USTAGI, thank you very much for joining us today. This was great. James, thank you. You did a very good job. I appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate you. As always, everyone out there, please stay safe.